This podcast is sponsored by GCK Consulting, a next-generation political consulting firm. From fundraising to polling to campaign strategy, GCK is helping get millennials elected all across the country. To learn more about GCK and their services, just go to gckconsults.com. Again, that's gckconsults.com. All right, now to the podcast. Welcome to the Millennial Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Valerie. My pronouns are she, her, hers. And today I'm joined by Zephyr Teachout, Associate Professor of Law at Fordham University and Democratic candidate for Attorney General of New York. Thanks for coming on. Oh, I'm so excited to be on and to get a chance to uh, talk to you and uh, talk about the Attorney General race. Yeah, me too. So for starters, could you tell us about what I'd say is the unusual background of this election, and what motivated you to throw your hat in the ring? About two months ago, uh, Attorney General Eric Schneiderman resigned after very serious allegations of assault uh, against his domestic partners, and the resignation happened very quickly. Um, it was a big shock to everyone in New York and created a race that nobody expected would happen. My own background is that I'm a lawyer. I started out as a, a death penalty lawyer, which we can talk about more later. And then for the last uh, more than a decade, I have been an anti-corruption lawyer, a constitutional lawyer, involved in uh, raising real issues of corruption in our society. And in particular, I'm one of the lawyers on a, a lawsuit against uh, Donald Trump that we brought three days after he took office uh, for his violations of the Constitution by uh, taking foreign government money through his businesses while he's a federal officer. So I've been really engaged in the front lines of the, uh, the legal fight against the Trump administration and here in New York, been very outspoken um, about uh, about the problems of corrupt, corruption and sexual misconduct in Albany, so um, it's a, it's it's a really important office. Um, at any point, the Attorney General's Office of New York is important, but in this era, it takes on special importance because you can't trust the federal government. You can't trust the federal government uh, to follow the law, to abide by basic constitutional norms, as we've seen with these grotesque family separation. Uh, cases. You can't trust the EPA to protect the environment. You can't trust the federal government to make sure that big banks are following the law. And um, I believe that we in New York have a special responsibility to not just stand up to Trump, but really um, stand for law in this country and law in our state. And uh, my background as a constitutional anti-corruption lawyer, I mean, that I have that this really deep understanding and history um, in fighting for, for the issues that are really the issues at stake in this, in this moment in our country. So about five weeks ago, um, I launched my campaign. Uh, we started with two staff and no office. 
we're, we've gotten unbelievable momentum in the last five weeks. So there's a lot I'd like to cover there. Let's start with the lack of trust in the federal government you mentioned. It's obviously bad enough with Donald Trump in the Oval Office, but things are set to get worse with Brett Kavanaugh on the Supreme Court which will solidify a 5-4 conservative Supreme Court majority for the foreseeable future. The lion's share of the focus has been on Roe v. Wade. What could you do as attorney general to protect reproductive freedom and fight back against the highest court in the country that will likely be supporting the GOP's assault on civil rights and liberties? It's a really devastating moment um, when Justice Kennedy resigned. It's a, it was a gut punch. Roe versus Wade happened when I was two years old, and I have grown up with the promise of this country that I will be treated as a full, equal uh, member of our political community, that I will have total autonomy over the health decisions that I make as a woman. And Roe versus Wade is a decision grounded in uh, every person's right to privacy, right to make their own decisions about their own health and not have the government telling them what they can or cannot do with their bodies, but also in a basic principle of equality for women to be treated as full equals. We need to have the same ability to make our own health decisions as men do. Um, it, the idea that Roe versus Wade uh, may be overturned with Kavanaugh um, is a horrifying idea. Um, and in New York, what, what may shock some people to know is we actually in New York um, are not ready for Roe versus Wade being overturned. What you might think is Roe versus Wade will be overturned, but there will be these states that women from around the country can go to to get their health needs met, to get an abortion if they need one. This is when I've talked to women who were around before Roe versus Wade. It's one of the things they talk about. They say, well, we women would travel from across the country to New York um, to deal with, with medical issues, to get an abortion, to feel res fully respected. So you would think that New York would already have state statutes um, and state constitutional provisions that would fully protect a woman's right to make her own decisions about her own body. Amazingly, we don't have that. So one of the most important things we can do, um, and I would be a strong advocate for as uh, attorney general, and I have been an advocate for, uh, for the last uh, several years, really concerned about this issue. Honestly, we were raising alarm bells about this four years ago, even without Trump and Kavanaugh. Like, why don't we have Roe versus Wade codified in New York State? And um, is to pass what's called the Reproductive Health Act, RHA, the Reproductive Health Act in New York State, which would then give the full protections to women in New York of Roe versus Wade so that we'd have those protect protections at the state level. We're in this very destabilizing period with a lot of exciting things happening in terms of organizing and a lot of horrifying things happening in terms of our federal government. What that means is that states really have to hold the flame um, of uh, and be the living counterexample to Trump. It's not just Roe versus Wade, though. I'm a strong supporter in New York of passing protections um, for undocumented immigrants here, protecting against uh, the, the federal government coming in and 
engaging in rogue deportations coming into our schools, uh, coming into our traffic courts, and uh, making sure that we, as New Yorkers, don't become complicit in the rogue activities of ICE and the federal government in its, uh, you know, racist uh, deportations. I moved away from your row question, but there's so much in New York we should be doing. And this actually relates to something that I feel very strongly about. Like you might say, well, why? Why does New York not have these basic protections? You think New York would have the DREAM Act, for instance, um, and it doesn't. You think New York would have um, the best voting rights in the country instead of has actually some of the worst voting rights in the country. And one of the core reasons that we don't is that we have a politics and a culture of corruption in New York government that has um, really been in control of the levers of power for decades now. As Attorney General, one of the most important things I can do is make sure that we investigate corruption in New York government. I can be an independent voice, um, an independent Attorney General, uh, making sure that our elected officials aren't violating laws. And that relates to the assaults coming from the Trump administration and from Brett Kavanaugh, because only if we really clean up house at home can we really be the warrior against um, the unconstitutional, bigoted, and unlawful actions of the Trump administration. So speaking of four years ago of those levers of power, in 2014, you primaried incumbent Democratic Governor Andrew Cuomo. A lot of commentators and pundits totally dismissed your campaign, but you ended up earning over 30% of the vote. Why did you primary Cuomo? And what did you learn from that race? Oh my gosh. I mean, if you asked me five years ago whether I'd be involved in politics, not involved in politics, I've always been an activist and an organizer and litigator. Um, but if I would be running for office, I would have said it was highly, highly unlikely. And, and, and in 2010, I had been actually so excited about Andrew Cuomo running for uh, governor. He said he was going to clean up Albany. And you know, I mentioned I was definitely a lawyer earlier. Mario Cuomo, his dad, had inspired me when I was a kid learning about his um, really brave anti-death penalty stance at a time when uh, that was uh, more controversial in, in New York. It should not be controversial. We should not be, the state should not be killing anybody. Anyway, so I had these positive associations, and then I was really devastated by um, Andrew Cuomo's betrayals. Instead of cleaning up Albany and pushing for the progressive policies that I thought he would, he almost immediately got behind and enabled a gerrymandering scheme that kept Republicans in power in New York State. And that's part of the reason we don't have the DREAM Act and we don't have Roe versus Wade codified. Um, so there were these moments of real betrayal. And then in 2014, it seemed like we were getting somewhere. He, he set up a commission called the Moreland Commission saying we have to investigate corruption in Albany. The corruption scandal's here just out of control. I mean, it's every, every season there's a new corruption trial. Um, every year there are more very serious sexual misconduct allegations about those in power. So he set up this Moreland Commission. We're finally going to do something about it. And then the commission started investigating corruption and got closer and closer to um, Andrew Cuomo himself. And he abruptly shut it down. 
And the same time, he said, we weren't going to be pursuing public financing of elections in New York. And that double betrayal, um, along with some other things, made me say, okay, I know the odds are long. I know it's hard to win. But we cannot allow Andrew Cuomo to continue to betray the progressive ideals of this state. And, and, and we can't allow him to keep squashing anti-corruption efforts. So um, I decided to run. I had no money, no name recognition, started traveling around the state talking to people. And what I found is that people were so hungry for a new kind of politics. I mean, this is before Bernie Sanders. Um, this is before Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And that hunger has only grown. And the collective optimism that we can actually change something has only grown. But even in 2014, you could see people... People that surprised me saying, no, I, I am done with this backroom politics. I'm done with this old school, old boys network. I am done with having such low expectations of government. Let's actually fully fund our schools. Let's actually deal with corruption. Let's actually have voting rights. Let's actually uh, invest in public infrastructure. Let's talk about single payer health care and get that passed. Like the deep hopes and the willingness to go out on a limb of the voters in that um, in 2014 really blew me away. I, we ended up getting 34% of the vote. And um, of course, I would have loved to win, but I was still proud of the fact that our race um, raised some key issues in New York that the governor then took action on. Like one of the big things I was talking about is that we cannot have fracking in New York State. We should not have fracking anywhere in this country. We should not have fracking anywhere in the world. It is so bad for people's health. It is releasing uh, methane, which is contributing to climate change at outrageous levels. I've I talked to so many people who were hurt by fracking and Andrew Cuomo ended up banning fracking in New York. We still, we still use fracked gas and we still use fracked gas infrastructure, so we've got a ways to go. But that was a really big deal, and I was proud of the ways in which my campaign was part of that. That race gave me an enormous amount of hope for the possibility of true, progressive, honest, open, truth-to-power politics. There, there may have been no more exciting moment for me in politics recently than when Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez won beat Joe Crowley a, a few weeks ago. Because she showed that you can not only run on this, but you can win on, on uh, you know, radical moral clarity, big demands. People are ready for something different. So I'm glad you brought up voting rights because New York has some of the most bizarrely arcane and complicated voting rights practices in the country. But I'd actually like to talk first about a practice that is common nationwide and ties into mass incarceration, which is a big part of your platform, stripping the right to vote from incarcerated people with a felony conviction. This practice is a very effective way to mass disenfranchise people of color, especially the black people who are disproportionately arrested and locked up throughout the country. Do you support voting rights for all New Yorkers, including incarcerated New Yorkers? I do. And this was a part of my 2014 platform. It's something I care so deeply about that incarceration has become, as you, as you said so, so eloquently, incarceration is a form of, is a sort of essential, not just a form, but actually like a, a core tool of disenfranchisement in this country. If we had universal voting rights, which we should, universal voting rights, Every election in this country would be different. Every election in this country. 
two states have universal voting rights. Countries in Europe have universal voting rights. Every member of a society um, has the right to a franchise, no matter what you think of them in other areas. Like true representation is one of the big under-discussed stories is the way in which um, segregation policies, including policies regarding mass incarceration. So it's a reinforcing process. I care so much about mass incarceration. I hope we talk about it some more and ending mass incarceration. Uh, but it's a reinforcing process because if you strip voting rights, then the people who are most affected can't vote. I spent a lot of time registering people to vote, getting people to go out to vote. And one of the things I see is even in places where people do have the right to get their voting rights back after um, being incarcerated, there's so much shame around it. Um, and that shame doesn't sit just within the person, but spreads to a broader community. So there's shame around the process of getting those rights back. There's shame around the fact that they lost those rights. And so the disenfranchisement isn't just technical. It's, it actually disenfranchises whole conversations. Because if you don't feel like you have the right to have a say in education policy or or criminal justice policy, um, and that is taken away from you, then that spreads to your children and your family. And um, anyway, as you can see, it's something I'm very passionate about. No, I'm glad. I was actually, because I, I was just going to ask you about mass incarceration. I want to tie it actually to immigration. You are a very strong supporter of the immigrant community, the undocumented immigrant community, and you're, to my knowledge, the first and only major candidate for attorney general to call for the abolition of ICE. How does ICE and immigration policy play into mass incarceration and the criminalization of people of color? We now have been... Uh, engaged in a grotesque and inhumane policy and racist policy for many decades. Uh, you know, I was a death penalty lawyer. I spent a lot of time in prisons and jails. Um, and when you see mass incarceration up close, you see structural racism up close, you see a, a, a dehumanization up close, you see the way in which our policies treat people as if they are worth less because of the color of their skin, because of the debt they may carry because they, they can't afford cash bail um, uh, because of an addiction they may have. Uh, a point about mass incarceration I think is really important that you, you probably know, but a lot of people may not know, which is that a huge percentage of incarcerated people in this country have not been to a trial. They are in jail, awaiting trial, not in prison, having been convicted. And they're in jail often because they can't afford bail. And in New York State, we have some of the worst discovery rules in the country, which means discovery rules are your right to know the um, witnesses against you and the evidence against you. Um, in Texas, you get to know before your trial what, what evidence a prosecutor has against you. In New York, you don't. So you're in jail. If you can't afford cash bail, you're in jail awaiting a trial. Nobody's found you guilty. Uh, and you don't even know what evidence they have against you. This is caging people. This is sort of against the most basic principles of law, which is that um, you shouldn't, people should be innocent in, until proven guilty. We may, we may parrot that statement, but we're certainly not acting like it. We're acting like you're guilty once you're charged. That um, culture of caging people enables the kind of indefinite detention that we see now um, practiced by the federal government, by the uh, Customs and Border Patrol, 
uh, where um, families, individuals are indefinitely detained without a right to a bond hearing, uh, not sure when they're going to, uh, you know, uh, to have a legal decision made. We, we get kind of numb to the um, numb to caging of human beings without full and fair and represented process. So I, I see them as profoundly connected. Um, and it's no accident that it's in both cases overwhelmingly disproportionately affecting communities of color. Um, so I think, I, and look, I'm running for attorney general. That's a chief law enforcement office in New York State. It's one of the most important law enforcement offices in the country. Law enforcement officers are supposed to stand for justice. You can't stand for justice and say that mass incarceration is okay. You can't stand for justice and say cash bail is okay. You can't stand for justice and say that criminalizing people because of a, a drug addiction or drug problem is okay. And you can't stand for justice and watch what ICE is doing, violating these most basic principles like the right to due process, the right to be heard, the right to representation, and, and say that's okay. Um, so I, I actually think that law enforcement should be leading the fight against ICE. Um, and I would like other candidates for attorney general to join me um, and other law enforcement officers to join me to say, hey, I know about law. I learned about law. And law says um, the, 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 the foundation of a healthy democracy requires that people feel secure in themselves and not like they are going to be stopped by somebody asking for their papers. But we're incre increasingly um, with Trump, although it precedes Trump. And this is really important. It's not, it's not like um, racist immigration policy started with Donald Trump. Not like mass incarceration started with Donald Trump. It's been many, many, many decades um, to say that uh, we cannot stand by as law enforcement and allow the most sacred principles of law to be undermined. Well, you keep actually beating me to my questions. Uh, my next question is precisely about the caging of humans and the history of racist criminal justice and immigration policy. This question is going to be a bit long, so bear with me. But a big concern among activists, a very valid one, is that the Abolish ICE movement is being hijacked by members of Congress, by cynical establishment politicians who really just mean replace ICE or still criminalize people of color, undocumented people, but like, in a quieter way. And I want to talk about two pieces that were published recently, one by the staff of the Black Youth Project, one by author David Correa in Verso, both about how the abolition of ICE isn't enough. I'm going to read a very quick excerpt from the BYP piece criticizing the calls to replace ICE rather than abolish it. Sentiments like these fail to acknowledge that every facet of U.S. immigration policy is rooted in racial exclusion, and that the larger court system shares the same legacy of racist violence. They ignore that any charge of authoritarianism leveled at ICE can be applied to any other branch of law enforcement, connections that immigrant activists who heralded the call to abolish ICE have fought hard to establish. So the point both pieces are making is that ICE is not some aberration from the system. It is a perfect embodiment of white supremacist law enforcement 
And if we truly want to dismantle what we're condemning in ICE, we also need to abolish the police and fundamentally reshape how we consider criminal justice shifting from a carceral view to a restorative justice view. What are your thoughts on dismantling the entire carceral system and fundamentally using law enforcement not to criminalize people, not to criminalize poverty or drug addiction, as you mentioned, and instead be a force of justice and equity? Well, uh, I mean, you said so much that's so powerful in there and moving to a restorative model um, is absolutely essential. Of course, as a candidate for attorney general, what I want to think about is a, a few different things. One is like, what are the what are the calls that we can make right now? Like making sure that um, speaking of law enforcement, so maybe my horizon is shorter than yours. <laughs> speaking of law enforcement um, and and police. Um, in New York State and police accountability in New York State, we have a huge problem when uh, we're militarizing our police force. That's something that I've spoken out against for years. We have a huge problem when we have no accountability um, for police violence, um, something that um, I'm actually uh, the only candidate, and I, I hope the other candidates join me, I'm the only candidate for attorney general in this race who's spoken out about it. But it should be a no-brainer that when there is a police shooting of a civilian, we know the police officer's name. This is state. Um, this is the state engaged in violence against a civilian. Even without judgment, we should know who that was. That's basic governmental transparency. And what's amazing to me is that in New York State, we don't know. There was a shooting recently in Brooklyn of a, a man named Sahib Basel. His family, several months ago now, his family do, do not know the names of the people, of the uh, police officers who shot him. And the city of New York knows those names and is not releasing those names. That violates the most basic principles of law and accountability. And I, I think law is a radical idea, the idea that everybody should be treated equal. And we too often fall short of that. Um, Las Vegas says that within 48 hours of any shooting, we know the police officer's name, and within 72 hours, um, you release all unedited footage. There's, there's, some, there's some policies that to me seem like just obvious. And the fact that in a democratic state with a democratic governor and a democratic mayor, we are not releasing the names of police officers involved in violence is really shocking. The long-term goal of moving towards a restorative justice model is absolutely essential. But I will say... There's some people that I want to see in prison. I just think the wrong people are in prison. I, I want to see financial criminals in prison. After 2008, um, there were essentially no prosecutions of the people who crashed our economy. Look, I got, I got a big heart, and I believe in restoration for everybody, but I do think that there is a place for making sure that powerful people abusing their power... Um, it, the, 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 I guess I do think there is a place for prosecutions... Um, and there is a place for some form of um, incarceration. It's just that we've got it entirely upside down right now. Hey, everyone. I'm Nathan. And I'm Dylan. And as you know, Millennial Politics is totally independent and volunteer run. That means every podcast you listen to, every article you read, and every tweet you see is created by a dedicated team of volunteers. It also means that we can say what we want to say when we want to say it, but we rely on listeners just like you to support our work. We hope you'll consider supporting us by subscribing at patreon.com slash millenpolitics. Every dollar 
will go directly towards our mission of shining a spotlight on progressive candidates, causes, and organizations. And if you subscribe at the ambassador level or more, we'll send you a free copy of How Our Government Really Works Despite What They Say. It's an award-winning book about the intricacies of American government, and you'll get to join our exclusive ambassador Slack channel and get to hang out with us all day, every day. I pretty much live there. So if that appeals to you, come join us. And we want to give a very special shout out to our executive producer, Greg Stevens, and our producers, Brad Tracy and Renee Garcia-Brown. Again, if you want to continue hearing interviews and conversations just like this one, we hope you'll visit patreon.com slash millenpolitics. That's patreon.com slash M-I-L-L-E-N politics and join the movement. All right, now back to the show. You've mentioned a bit about your Democratic opponents in this race. There are currently five Democratic candidates, all of them, I believe, branding themselves as anti-Trump progressives, some more credibly than others. Why do you think that you're the best choice for primary voters? You know, I have, uh, I I think there's a few things that um, I, I bring to this office, and probably the most important is that I am radically independent. I do not answer to or check in with uh, I'm not dependent on any political uh, power structure. Uh, you know, I'm independent to the point of being a pain in the ass, basically. <laughs> so um, I always have been. What what that means in the past month has been like real differences have come out in the race. I'm the only candidate who's not taking corporate money. Um, in New York State, you can not only take corporate PAC money, you're actually allowed to take corporate money itself. It's this crazy loophole that allows candidates to take money from LLCs. I'm not taking LLC money. All the other candidates have said they're taking uh, corporate money. Um, that's a big difference. I think it's totally inappropriate for um, somebody who's responsible for investigating and possibly um, prosecuting big corporations to be taking money from those corporations. Another big difference is um, I've been willing to call out Andrew Cuomo's own role in the corruption in New York State, the way in which he has enabled a culture of corruption, one that has affected women in government who have not had their um, serious sexual harassment claims heard and has affected people in New York State as big donors have gotten special favors that you know people without big bucks or big connections are getting shut out. I am the only candidate, as I said earlier, who's called for uh, the names of police officers um, being uh, released within 48 hours involved in police violence. I'm the only candidate who's called for abolishing ICE. Um, You know, if you'd asked me two months ago where there were differences, I might say, look, everybody, you know, it's a remarkably progressive field. Um, We all largely agree on some national progressive slogans, (laughs) but... When it comes where the rubber hits the road, you have to be willing to tell the truth about who's causing what. You have to be willing to name big corporations and their role in our current society. You have to be willing to name big name politicians and their role in our current um, corruption. And I've done that my whole life, and I'm going to keep doing it. Okay. So lastly. Where can folks find you online and how can they support your campaign? Uh, Zephyrfornewyork.com. Um, Z-E-P-H-Y-R-F-O-R-N-Y.com. If you want to sign up to volunteer, that's great. If you want to sign up to make a small donation, that's great. If you're not taking corporate money, it's all about grassroots support. So, so that's the way to go. You can also follow me on Twitter. 
uh, Zephyr Teachout. And yes, that's me tweeting. So those spelling errors are mine. Uh, then we also have a Facebook page, which you can find on, on either of those two. And I will say, I, I really appreciate talking to you. We're in this moment in history where terrible things are happening and amazing political moments are happening at the same time. If we don't get in, engaged in both truth-telling and activism, litigating and agitating, it can get really bad. It's already pretty bad, but it can get even worse. And um, my campaign is a true grassroots campaign. We're about door-knocking. We're about talking to people at subway stops, answering questions and really, really uh, listening, not to big donors, not to big corporations, but to, to new ideas. And I'm always eager to hear new ideas, too. I've, I've learned a lot in the last few months just from talking to folks, and um, I want to hear more. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast today. It's wonderful to be on. Thank you. Of course. Now, to our listeners, make sure to follow Millennial Politics on social media. Support us through our Patreon. Check out our merch at millennialpolitics.co. And stay tuned for the next episode of our podcast. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.